We live in what is called the land of opportunity. That we have a certain freedom in our country that allows doors that would normally be shut around the rest of the world to be open here in this country. You know, immigrants have come here for hundreds of years to be free and have opportunities that wouldn't, that wouldn't uh, be available in their homeland. And so uh, we live in this land of opportunity. Now, so we, we understand every single day opportunity in this country. Now, there's a huge difference between opportunity and being an opportunist. Okay, there's a huge difference between those two things. Opportunity and being an opportunist. Now, an opportunist is someone who takes advantage of an opportunity uh, that kind of comes his way and with some type of malicious intent. Okay, let me share this with you. Now, I have my friend Stacy. Here's my friend Stacy. Wave your hand in the air right here, Stacy. Uh, and uh, Stacy sitting here, and I'm going to offer him one dollar of real American money, real American money, if you'll walk over to John and slug him in the face as hard as you can. No? I'm not, you're not, okay, 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 here's the dollar. Now, what if I said, I've got one million dollars, and all you have to do is walk over to my friend John and slug him in the face as hard as you can? <laughs> all right yeah he's like here's an opportunist over here he's like let's go have these on this thing right right i just turned stacy into an opportunist within like 10 seconds you caved man i mean it's just like it was just just terrible but we we have we go through these these times where um opportunities arise randomly uh we're not ready for them and it really exposes kind of who we are. I lived in uh, South Florida uh, in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew came through, a Category 5 hurricane. Uh, And I mean, it wiped out everything, wiped out power, wiped out uh, security. I mean, so you saw looters being opportunists, taking advantage of the situation. I saw that live at hand. You might be at work and this might, this might be something that happens to you at work. Let's just say the guy who has the, one of the best offices, uh, you know, has the window and it's really nice and that jerk gets fired and everybody's jockeying for position because they want that guy's office, right? Everybody in the office becomes an opportunist at that moment. And see, what, 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 this ha- what happens to us within our souls, it exposes something. When random, unstructured opportunities come our way, it exposes us. Because it shows behavior that normally is covered up by tact. Uh, it releases our inhibition a little bit. Where we, we really exposes a little bit about who we are. It's part of us. At some level, we are all opportunists. There is something that will happen in our life where we will see an opportunity. And regardless of our moral background, ethical teaching, whatever we've learned, will expose sin in our life. Uh, this message is pretty close at, at heart for me. It's kind of hard to write it, mainly because a lot of the questions that I'll ask towards the end are questions that I'm asking in my own life. And as, as opportunities have arisen, there has been exposure of sin in my own life. And I have to ask myself some questions. Am I being an opportunist? And am I taking opportunities in the wrong way? And so my, my hope is, is that you will join me in allowing God to kind of expose our heart today. Because Jesus didn't die for the sins that you are willing to admit. He died for every single sin that's in your heart. 
And, I'll, and the only way to kind of get that out, confess, and, and receive forgiveness is to expose them, to illuminate them. And so I, my hope is today that we would um, be exposed as opportunists as we all are. And we're going to do that through watching one of the uh, most famous passages. This is called Palm Sunday. And the reasons why it's called Palm Sunday is because we'll see some uh, palm branches being waved in the air for Jesus's what's called the triumphal procession. Procession. So this is found in John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible right in front of you, either on your phone, your tablet, possibly uh, an actual Bible kind of that is written in front of you and text it, we should have that on a, on a version app as well. And if all else fails, we have it up on the screen uh, for you to, to read from the screen. If you don't have a Bible and uh, you just don't have one at home or you don't have one with you, we'd love for you to have a Bible on us, okay? So we have those available at the Connect table. You can grab one at any time, and we'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. Now, let me give you some context to to John chapter 12. You're still looking for John. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. It's the fourth book of what we call the New Testament. And so what's happening in John chapter 12, David did a great job last week of preaching through John chapter 11, which is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, one of his friends, from death to life. Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus shows up on the scene, calls him out of the grave, and Lazarus is now alive. This is a big deal. Now, Jesus spent most of his time in the north part of Israel, uh, in the Galilee portion where he was kind of from. Now, he was coming down into Jerusalem, which is the capital city where God was leading him. He knew full well that God was leading him there so that he could be crucified and then later raised to life. Now, he knew that was going to happen, so he was kind of making his way there. Now, the city in which uh, Lazarus lived was pretty close at hand to Jerusalem, only a few miles away. So people that were in and around there were hearing rumors of who Jesus was. There was rumors of a healer. There was rumors of a teacher. Rumors of this might be the Messiah. We're not really sure if it is, but there's rumors of him. And then sure enough, John chapter 11, Jesus shows up uh, in in Lazarus' hometown. And after Lazarus had been dead for four days, calls him out of the grave. I mean, there's a crowd there watching this happen. And boom, guy comes back alive. And this, I mean, this confirms everything that we thought that Jesus was. This is, this is amazing. This is, this is unparalleled. We've never seen anything like this before. This truly is. All the rumors are true. They, everything they said about Jesus is absolutely true. Our Messiah is now here and he is present with us and he is moving into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at the time and all of Israel was conquered and being taken over by the Roman Empire. They were underneath the very hard thumb of the Roman Empire. They were being governed by a guy named Pontius Pilate, who was very cruel, very brutal. They had a puppet king, who was, he was really just a formality, uh, that he was the king of Israel. But Pilate was the one who really held control. And he held a very heavy hand on the people of Israel. So much so that if there was any type of insurrection or revolution, or anybody that said, hey, You can't do this to us. This is our land. This is our city. You can't have this city. You can't govern us. Dead. Pilate would kill him. In fact, it was pretty normal to walk around the outside of the city and see crosses everywhere with men hanging on them, dead or dying. It's a pretty normal occurrence. Pilate wanted to make a show of the fact that nobody stands up against Rome. And so there was massive fear against the Romans. 
the Jews stood no chance. They had no army. They had no leadership. The leadership that they did have was corrupt. And so the people had no voice. And they were incredibly fearful of the Romans. And so we pick it up right there. John chapter 12, verse 12. And I'm going to read through verse 19. And this is what is called the triumphal procession of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. It says this, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning when he, after his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd uh, went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, this is an amazing celebration. A fantastic party. The victorious king is coming into town, and it is a victory parade. It is a celebration. It is huge. How we know it's huge is that John writes down that this was a large crowd. Now, the population of Jerusalem at the time was somewhere around 100,000 people. But because it was Passover, which is the most important holiday in Jewish tradition, usually pilgrims from all over the nation would come to Jerusalem uh, to worship together. And so the vast majority of Jews would have showed up to Jerusalem at this time. Somewhere up, you know, they estimate somewhere around a million people would have been uh, in and around Jerusalem at this time. So basically the entire nation was present and available. I mean, they kind of had a quorum to decide, like, is this really the Messiah? And so the entire nation was gathered to celebrate the, the, the king of Israel. It wasn't just a small pocket. This is the whole nation. And so this was, with Jesus, it was perfect timing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was bringing the nation of Israel together to celebrate him at the same time. Another symbol that we see, the symbols are pretty important. It's, it's actually filled with symbols in this passage. Is you have palm branches, why we call it Palm Sunday. You have palm branches that they would have taken down out of trees. They would have held them up in the air and shaken them around and singing. And they're, they're celebrating. They're having a good time. And when Jesus was about to ride by, they would lay them on the ground for his, uh, for his donkey to come by and ride on top of it. Kind of creating this red, ancient red carpet kind of thing. And they would have seen this. They would have remembered this from kind of the days of King David. That David would come in from battle, the victorious warrior. And he would come in on his white horse and ride through Jerusalem with his army behind him and their spoils behind that and they would ride in they would bring out the palm branches and shake them around and celebrate and sing and they would they would lay them all out as a sign of victory the palm branches were a symbol of victory and here comes our victorious warrior another symbol hosanna hosanna in the highest here comes the lord here comes the king of israel here he comes now hosanna 
uh, is, uh, it, it actually means, the depth of its meaning means, uh, please save us. That's actually what it means literally. Please save us. Now, uh, this would have been a pretty common uh, word that they would have used in celebration, much like we would use the phrase, hooray, right? Anybody ever said hooray, right? Now, now we don't usually think about the word hooray as meaning anything. It's just like some kind of exclamation, like, let's just have a good time. Hooray, 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 yeah, that's great, yeah. Nobody actually knows what that actually means. Now, it actually comes from uh, the, the word huzzah, huzzah, like army, like military guys would say, huzzah, huzzah. It was kind of a, you know, several centuries ago, right? But that actually comes from the word uzzah, which, which is a warlike term that means surround your enemy and kill them. Uh, and so they would, uh, you know, they would actually shout that, which means come around them and brutally kill them. So every time you say hooray, you're actually saying surround them and kill them. That's what you're saying. Uh, and so, but, you know, we've lost all of that meaning. Now it's just kind of some exclamation. Now, at this time, they would have said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, it is possible, I'm not ruling this out, but it is very possible that the people knew what they were saying. That they knew that this meant save us. This is one who is coming to save. It's very possible that they knew that. But it's also very possible that they didn't know that at all. And they were just saying that because that is the thing to say. <clears throat> now, either way, whether they were ignorant or knowledgeable, it doesn't matter. They were right. And so we have this depth of symbol that says this is the one who is coming to save. Even Jesus' very name means this is the, the, the one who saves. So they get it right. They know what they're doing. Lastly, the last symbol that we see is this Jesus coming through and riding on a donkey. Now, this is kind of curious, right? Uh, this would be kind of the equivalent of going to your victory parade and, like, riding in your Ford Pinto, right? I mean, that's probably, that's kind of the, 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 the image that we get. Like, it's not a very nice animal. This is not a war horse. This is nothing that you would ride into battle. Although it did symbolize two things. It symbolized peace and it symbolized humility. Peace and humility. In fact, there was some precedence for this. A couple other kings had rode into the city on a donkey to symbolize that they were coming as a peaceful citizen of that city. Uh, and it also just demonstrates this, our, you know, the humility, the centerpiece of our faith, the person of Jesus Christ, the one that we celebrate, the picture of Christ in our mind is both that he is infinitely glorious, that he is amazing, and yet knows our circumstance. He knows our plight. He walks with us. He is humble enough to stoop down to be just like us, but glorious enough to be our king. So he's, he's both of those things. And so he rides on a donkey as a symbol of his, humil- of his humility. Okay? So we see all of these different symbols. But here's the crazy thing about the picture that we see on Palm Sunday. Now, if you've seen a movie of this or, you know, some kind of picture, I mean, it's a huge celebration. And what it is, is they have celebrated their victory. They're celebrating their victorious king. But this victorious king has never won a battle. Ever. He's never even been in a battle. He has never once fought. He's never once held weapons and killed things. There's never a moment where Jesus was a soldier in which he held weapons to kill other things. That's never happened. But yet they were celebrating him as the one who's coming into the city. The victorious king has won the battle, has won the war, and is bringing in the spoils. That's what's happening in this, in this whole day. I mean, it is a classic picture of like 
counting your chicks before they hatch. I, know, I, got, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that right, but counting your chickens. One of those things. Okay, so, uh, you know, you're, 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 counting, you're counting things before they actually happen, right? It's, it's a victory chant. And I think the Romans are watching this happen. Imagine if you're a Roman soldier at this point, And you're watching this go down. And you're looking at your buddy right next to you and saying, Did we fight that guy? Did you hear about a battle in which that guy fought? Did you hear about us losing a battle? A war? Why, why are we having a victory parade and there hasn't been a war? There hasn't been a battle. I didn't hear about a battle. Did you hear about a battle? No, I didn't hear about a battle. Then why in the world are we celebrating this guy, the victorious king? It's because they're actually celebrating it before it actually happens. Why? Now, just before this, remember, you have the nation of Israel wondering about this guy named Jesus who they hear rumors about. They are fearful for their lives all of the time. They could do something wrong and the next day be crucified or killed for it by the Romans. They lived every single day in petrifying fear. And so then you have Jesus. This guy comes onto the scene, shows up at a funeral that's four days old, says, roll away the stone, calls the guy out, doesn't even touch him, just calls him out, and the guy gets up, and he's alive. And everybody's around to see that. So if you're fearful, if you're a fearful Israelite, if you're a fearful Jew, you're looking at that situation and saying, ha! If I died, I've got the guy who's going to raise me to life. So what does it matter if I die? I have nothing to fear anymore. Because I've got the guy on my team who will raise me to life even if they kill me. So they have no reason to fear anymore. So they're thinking, we've already won. We've already won. Why do we need, we don't even need to fight. This guy named Pilate that we're so scared of, he just needs to wave the white flag and move on out. There's not even even any reason to fight anymore. We've already won. And we have a lot of opportunists at that very moment. Because they're seeing this. They're looking at this guy and saying, Huh, so if we'd have nothing to fear, and he's the most important person in the world, and he can raise people from the, from the dead, he can conquer nations, we're going to be rich! We're going to be powerful again! We're going to be the most important nation on the planet. I'm going to get, we're, we're just going to have all sorts of stuff. I'm going to get to go on vacation. I'm going to get to, my crops are going to now, you know, work out. And, and everything's going to happen for our good. Now that we've got this guy. And we're going to be powerful. We're going to be wealthy. We're going to be healthy. In fact, we're probably never even going to die ever. Because we got this guy. And he's on our team. You see, they had the right Savior. They actually did. They really did have the right guy. But the opportunists had the wrong intent. They had the wrong intent for what was happening in this picture. 
They had the right guy. You see, Jesus would gather the large crowd. But he wasn't just gathering a small group of people just to bless them. The purpose of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection was so that he can bless all the nations, not just one. The purpose for Jesus' victory, you know, the palm branches, was to have victory over sin, not victory over the Romans. The purpose of Jesus' salvation was to take you and I from life or from death to life. That was the salvation that he's talking about, not just salvation from, from the Romans. And this powerful, peaceful king, the prince, the prince of peace, was not just to bring peace for a small amount of time here on earth. This prince of peace was bringing peace for all eternity. His sights and his intent was much bigger than their intent. And they were taking this opportunity and making it a big point of being an opportunist. And I think there's a lot for us to learn. Because the problem with being an opportunist is that when the opportunity begins to fizzle out, when it begins to go away, when it turns out to be something that you didn't think it was, opportunists become very unreliable. They become kind of flighty, kind of fickle. You see, four days later, after the big triumphal entry, after the big victory parade, you have Jesus who has the last supper with his group of disciples. They think that this is just, you know, this is going to be the final meal before we take power. And Jesus goes out to a garden. It's called Gethsemane. And begins to pray, and as he prays, he understands the weight that is upon him, the stress that is upon him, so much so that he bleeds, he, he sweats blood. This amazing stress is the sin of the world, as the weight is becoming so heavy upon him, understanding what he is about to go do. And often to the distance, in the middle of the night, comes the first battle. It's the first group that is willing to raise a sword against the victorious king, the one who can raise people from the dead, the one that with with just the sound of his voice could kill people. At least that's what they thought. So here comes the first battle. In Matthew 26, it records it. You don't have to turn there, it'll be behind me. Verse 47. "While While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the, man, is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those, this is Peter actually, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew out his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Some victorious warrior. The guy that we thought was going to take over the city doesn't even want to fight. The guy that we thought we're, 
we were just going to have incredible victory that everybody was just going to lay down their arms. And the first time Peter takes up his sword, hey, this is the first battle, and I'm, I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to strike this guy, cut off his ear. In fact, another piece of scripture tells us that Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on him, heals him immediately. This wasn't a Jesus that, would, that his power was taken away. He was willingly leaving it, letting, it, uh, letting it down. And this is when the opportunity leaves. Actually says later on in the passage that all of his disciples flee from him. At the chief moment of his popularity, you had thousands of people yelling his name. And now he is arrested, about to be led to be crucified. And there is no one with him anymore. Opportunity is now gone. And all of the opportunists with it. Imagine, put yourself in that situation. What would you do? Now imagine for a second that you, that you worked for a, uh, for a struggling company. Imagine if you had a job, nine to five, Monday through Friday, for a struggling company. You worked there for several years. Um, you know, some of you might even be in that situation right now. You work, you know, you work every day, and you're, you're trying to make ends meet. You got, eh, it's kind of a below-average salary, below-average benefits package, below-average vacation plan. Uh, you know, you try to save, but it's a little bit tough. And, you know, every day the boss is coming in saying, yeah, things don't look so good this quarter. We really got to save some money. You guys really got to get on this. It's, it's not going so well. We need some help. I and mean, we're really struggling through this whole thing. There's bigger and better companies out there that are really putting us down. But then there's a rumor of this, this sales agent who, who, can, who really has made some big sales. I mean, he's done some great things. And the boss is going after him. And he's trying to hire him. If, you know, this guy might have the ability to save our company. And sure enough, the, the boss hires him. He comes on. And his first day at work goes out and makes a million-dollar sale. Huge. Huge sale. It's the biggest sale that the company has ever seen. And he did it on his first day. And we believe that he can do it every single day. If he can do a million-dollar sale on the first day, then what possibly could he do in the, years, in the years to come? And at this very moment, you go home and you tell your wife, and you're like, guess what? We got this guy who can make million-dollar sales every single day. That means that I'm going to get a raise. That means that we're going to get a better house. We're going to get a better car. We can, we can send our kids to college. We can go on massive vacations. My benefits package is going to be amazing. I'm going to have a huge office space. We're going to get promoted. We're going to be one of the biggest companies in all of the world. And then the next day you get there and the guy says, I'm retiring. I think you'd be a little ticked off. I would. I'd be pretty ticked off. What happened? You just took away my dream. You took away what was mine. You took away all my goals. All that vacation, all that money, all the bigger house, the bigger car. All that that I was supposed to get, you're taking it away because you want to retire? That's not fair. You know what? Forget you. I don't care about you anymore. Sometimes I think I'm an opportunist. That uses Jesus for my own glory. I use him as a tool. As a convenience. For what I want. Sometimes I uh, use him as a security blanket. This is the guy that's going to get me out of hell. And so I use him as that. And not the spirit that lives inside of me. That walks with me every day. And gives me joy. Sometimes I use him as a vending machine. 
God, if you'll just bless me in this way, then, you know, then, then we'll be good. And sometimes I get mad when he doesn't do what I want to do. I don't think I'm alone in this. These are questions. I'm going to give you about three questions just as applications. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you some questions that I think will expose the opportunists within us. And these are things that I want you to think through and pray through this week as we head towards Easter. These are questions in my own heart that I've had to answer. Number one, is Jesus a tool I use in my life for my plans? Is Jesus a tool I use in my life for my plans? Let's just take it easy right here. What about your marriage? Is Jesus just a tool to make it a little bit better? Or is Jesus the centerpiece of your marriage? The one that you strive for, the one that you base your family on? Or is he just the patchwork that kind of helps it along? Is Jesus the centerpiece of your parenting? Or is Jesus, or do you just use principles from the Bible to kind of teach your children to have good moral behavior? Do you use him as a tool for your own purposes? Number two, do I get angry when what seems like the perfect plan doesn't happen? Do I get angry when what seems like the perfect plan doesn't happen? I've formulated it in my mind, God, this is what I think should happen. It makes sense. It's a win-win for everybody. This is what I want. What, you know, and, and then it doesn't happen. And we begin to blame God for that. When the career option is out there, the best job that you can have, this is what you're skilled to do. This is what I want to do. This is what's going to be best for my family. It's the perfect job out there. And then it falls through and you wonder, why? When you save for years... For retirement, one million, two million, three million. Investments are going up. Things are getting better. Four million, five million. And you build a five million dollar nest egg for you and your spouse to hang out. And you're going to travel the country. You're going to travel the world. You've worked very hard. And then you get cancer at 58 years old. Get a little angry about that. It's not your plan. It might be that you spend thousands of hours providing as many opportunities for your children as you possibly can, spending buku's amount of money, buku's amount of time on your children, giving them every possible opportunity that they can. And when they're teenagers, they look at you and say, I hate you and I don't want to be around you. That's not fair. That's not my plan. Number three. Am I the constant priority in my own life? Am I the constant priority in my own life? Where you say, I just don't even see the purpose of even asking God what I'm supposed to do. That my priorities are more important. And so why should I even wait on him? Why should I spend any time serving somebody else that doesn't propel me forward? Why would I serve children? Why would I serve the church? Why would I serve anybody? Because it doesn't advance my plot doesn't advance my life, why should I spend any time doing that? Why should I be generous? Why should I give of my, hurt, my, higher, my, my hard-earned money to give it away, to love other people? What's the point? That doesn't advance my agenda. That's my opportunity, not somebody else's. And this is a little bit of where I've been living lately, questions that I've been asking myself. And here's what I've come to found it, find is the only answer for me. It's this. Repentance. Repentance. 
Repentance is the exposure of sin, hopefully by questions like this. We expose sin in our own life. We look at it. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's brutal. We don't like to look at it. And we say, God, I confess this to you. And say, I I don't want this anymore. And you have to take it from me. And you confess your sins. The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And he will take it. And the Bible calls us to this idea of repentance. Where we turn away, away from our sin completely. And it's not just to turn sideways where we can still see our sin. Possibly be a little bit involved with it. Repentance is knowing where our sin exists. And then turning around, going the other way and heading towards Christ. That's what repentance is. And it happens first when our sin is exposed to us and we are opportunists who use Jesus for our own benefit. So I'm calling you to repentance. This week is important. Uh, Sunday, next Sunday is important, but today is just as important. And so I would hope that this week that you would spend some time in repentance. I hope that before we sing our next song that you would spend some, some time in conviction, confession, and repentance. I hope that today, before you walk out of this place, that you would spend just some time doing some work with God, confessing, hopefully through these words, that you've had some exposure of your sin, you realize it, you know that you have to confess it, and you spend time actively repenting of it. I hope that you would do that today. And if you need help with that, and you just want to talk to somebody through that, I hope that you would find me in the back of the room, and I'd love to pray with you through that. And what's fun about, about this whole thing is that, you know, Jesus, I wonder what Jesus was thinking during the triumphal procession. <laughs> I know what the Romans were thinking. And I know what the people shouting the praises were thinking. But I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Because he knows the mind of every single person who was around. He knows their intent. He knows their heart. He knew that when they shouted Hosanna that they wouldn't shout it for very much longer. He knew that about them. But yet he still let it happen. He still accepted the praise. You know why? Because they were right. (laughs) They were right. He was the victor. He was the one bringing salvation. He was the prince of peace. They were right. Every bit of what they said was right. He was just going to do something much bigger than what they thought. And so I say the same to you. You might not think that confession of sin is that big of a deal. It's a much bigger deal than you think. You might think that the repentance of your sin is not that big of a deal. What does God care? What what does it even matter? But God desires to use you in your brokenness and in your failure, just like he desires to use me. I found that more and more every day for the past couple weeks, that even though I'm broken and shattered and frustrated and angry and and sinful, that God still desires to use me. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, it says this. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Familiar? Triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who, who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers, peddlers, opportunists of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, here's the deal. Don't take this opportunity this week as just an opportunist. Somebody with malicious intent. Someone who just says, I was told to invite somebody to come along, to come to church on Easter Sunday, so I'm going to do it. Maybe it's just an opportunity that I'm taking advantage of. I want you to be the aroma of Christ. That even in our brokenness and in our sin, our exposure to sin, that we have the ability to be the ones who speak for Jesus. And that we are led in this triumphal procession and we are to bring the knowledge of Christ everywhere. I love that. And that we're not peddlers of God's word. We're not opportunists of God's word. That we believe it, we love it, and we live it. And so we take this triumphal procession and we say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. We look back at this passage and I don't know if those people knew what Hosanna meant, but we do. And so when we sing this next song, the band's going to come up and sing. And we're going to sing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. God, please save me. That we might bring the truth to a lost world. And before we do that, before we do that, I want you to spend some time with God. Right there in your seat. Okay? So let's pray. Bow your head. Close your eyes if you would. God, we love you so much. Thank you for being so victorious in our life that we know we are past the cross, we are past the resurrection, and we look back at it and and know that it is the grace of God that you have given to us, your son, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sin, who allows us to be put back together after our brokenness, and that you heal us, that you save us, And now, no matter how messed up and jacked up and screwed up we are, we are the aroma of your son, Jesus. In our failure, you bring victory. In our sin, you bring forgiveness. And where we hated you, you loved us. So God, I just ask in this moment that we as a church would have a collective moment of repentance that hopefully today your spirit has illuminated sin in in the hearts in this room where we have made you convenient to us where our life revolves around us and we use you as a tool to make our agenda move forward God I pray that you would forgive us of that that you would expose sin And help us to repent today. Thank you for doing that. With your head still bowed. Band's just going to play a few notes before we sing. I hope that you just do some work with God in your seat. Silently in your own heart. And you ask one of those questions. Jesus, do I use you as a tool for my own purposes? Do I have plans for my life that you have nothing to do with? 
Do I advance my own agenda without any, without ever asking, what do you want? What do you want, God? So I hope that you would just pray and ask God to forgive you. Confess it. And then tell him that you want his power to repent. And that this week you would begin a life of repentance. Walking the other way. Moving away from your sin and running towards Jesus. Let's do some work in your seat. When you feel ready, you could stand up and sing. You can sit as long as you want or you can stand and sing. But do work and I'll be in the back of the room if you want to come and talk. I'd love to pray with you.